0: I hope you'll agree that's a great theme. This newer hymn, very comprehensively, looks at the work of Christ and its application to us. And maybe in this new year, when you're meeting a hard place, you need to sing to yourself, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. These things are true because of Christ Jesus. Today, I turn you to God's Word as we look to Matthew chapter 7 continuing our studies in Matthew in what is called the Sermon on the Mount and intending to go on with this gospel. I will be in this gospel, I'm sure, much of 2007, Lord willing. We'll break in for certain things, Easter, and maybe take a break in the summer to look at something different, but we'll continue on with this gospel. And chapter 7 today, as I read the first six verses, words of Christ, I ask you to follow along. Take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. This is the living Word of God. Today in 2007, the critic is king. Nearly everyone in our society is considered to be an expert on almost any given subject. One of the things this has given rise to that I have learn to dislike quite a bit, is the phenomenon of the radio talk show. You might disagree with me. I'm sure there is some good from radio talk shows. But I have learned to really dislike the way in which they pool together a combination of egos out of control and ignorance, often poisoning the air and creating more confusion on subjects than they do help. Another thing I see in America is the way in which the public can disagree with things done by office bearers, elected officials, and indeed we have the right to disagree with things they do if they've done wrong. But the tendency becomes today to leap upon the person who makes a mistake or does something out of line and immediately assume in our criticism, in our discussions, as we say, around the water cooler, that the office holder, because of a mistake or a misdeed, is morally corrupt, a scoundrel, guilty of completely unethical and illegal dealings in every possible way, and we write them off and we refuse to acknowledge any value that could come through them. Much of the resulting meanness and acrimony of criticism in our society has reached levels that are truly amazing at times, and it isn't just in the halls of Congress. This certainly has been pointed out in recent days. But the bickering and the backbiting isn't just Congress, it isn't just Washington, it's in every local community It's in families, and it infiltrates its way into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to the shame of God's people. A Scottish Bible commentator of the 19th century, late 19th century, by the name of Alexander McLaren had a paragraph about this that I found worth repeating to you. He said this, "'The race of fault-finders is ever in our midst.'" They are blind as moles to applaud any beauty or goodness, but they possess the eyes of a lynx to spot a hint of failure. They pounce on others' faults, and they act like carrion flies, buzzing with sickening hums of satisfaction around any visible human wound. That was said 125 years ago. And it's only grown more true in the time since it was written. That sets a theme, I believe, as we come to Matthew 7 this morning. In the words of Christ, and the ways in which we talk and think about one another and about others in our society. There are people who look at Matthew 7. Maybe they have some idea that the Sermon on the Mount has a theme and a structure. But they look at 7 and they say, I just... Uh, This seems like the miscellaneous sayings that are sort of thrown together before he finished this discourse. But I would be with those who do insist that there are threads of unity still here. Let me just quickly give you a little sketch of what the sermon has said already. We began with it in chapter 5 and seeing this in the Beatitudes, the hungering and thirsting for God, the mourning over sin, which really is the way in which you become a Christian in the first place. By declaring your bankruptcy without God and seeking his righteousness, which he certainly gives as his free gift. And then Jesus went on after assuming he had sort of laid out the definition of a Christian to say, well, then what is this Christian like in the midst of a corrupt society? Well, he's like salt and like light, leavening and brightening the, the corrupt place in which he dwells. And then further in chapter 5, he went into 6 specific case studies on different aspects of the law of God. The, that law which people thought, well, I'm doing pretty good if I, if I appear to be keeping the outward dimensions of this law. But Jesus, in one case after another, said, no, it's not just the outward and superficial. It's the inner intention and even the thought of the heart that matters. And then in chapter 6, he went into our acts of worship, prayer, giving, What are we doing these for, just to obey a standard and be seen by people? Or is our concern to do what is seen by our Father who sees in secret? And he so emphasized those things and then contrasted those whose cares are set entirely on material things and said, why don't worry over those things? Put your concern where it belongs, on the things that your Father sees and knows. Well, now in chapter 7, we find him speaking about some of the relationships that we have with other people and with God. And we begin with this passage, the first six verses here, Matthew 7, 1 to 6, in which he is warning us about judgmentalism and criticism. The attitudes we have that quickly can build up walls and and create, you know, almost weapons with our words and our thinking towards other people. And he reminds us that judgment is a prerogative of God and that it is God's final opinion in any matter that is most important. Now, we are accountable to God and we are accountable to men for a lot of things. The cars that I can see, maybe you can't, going down Oregon Pike, are accountable to the traffic laws of the state of Pennsylvania, And we're all accountable to the Internal Revenue Service to do something with those booklets that they cheerfully send us in the mail a day or two after Christmas every year. We're accountable to a lot of things. But the Scripture would remind us that above all, we're accountable to the living God. His eye sees us. His eye is upon us, and and He actually views our lives, and we will give a final account to Him. And as we go through this life, speaking about other people and sort of cavalierly, you know, making this comment or that comment about somebody, critical or or praiseworthy, whatever it is, are we aware, as we have opinions about other people, that God has an opinion about us? And the gospel says that God's opinion about you, apart from the, the covering blood of Jesus Christ, is not... A favorable opinion. And unless you are under that grace of his that covers the sin of your life with his total forgiveness, then God's opinion of you is going to be a catastrophic matter to deal with someday. But it need not be that way. Once we are the forgiven people of God in Christ, it should change everything. Grace should so renovate us that it's almost as if we see everything with a new pair of glasses. We wear glasses of grace. We've been treated with grace. Now we look upon other people and we say, how might God be dealing in that life? I look there and there's something ugly in this life and something praiseworthy in this life. But am I looking at the right things? Am I looking at what God looks at? And the scripture teaches us to see other people with the lens of grace We might call this a Christian's discernment about the world, discernment that allows us to see things and understand things in a different way than those with only a natural thinking mind. To begin with this morning, we look at verses 1 and 2 only, and I want you to see in these two verses what they do not mean, since they are often taken as a bald statement and, and misinterpreted. When Jesus said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. I believe we're asked here to understand a difference between a judgment of condemnation and a judgment of discernment. They're very different things. You see, some people would think that the word judgment means any kind of forming of an opinion. And if that were the case, Jesus would be saying, don't ever form an opinion about anybody. Don't ever draw lines of of distinction and put people in a category or, or decide this or that about them. You know how people might challenge you. Maybe you've had somebody in your face at some time or other in your life, and they come up to you and they say, who are you to judge me? You know, I've had people say the equivalent of that to me when I had said nothing to them, that that was in any way a judgment of them, but they just took as who I am and and what they know my message represents that that I was somehow ready to condemn them. And of course, we live in the society of anything goes and do your own thing and everybody makes up their own truth. So when we start drawing moral lines and start speaking about character and things that God approves and God doesn't approve, we're immediately called bigots. We're not allowed to have these kind of standards, the world says, and they'll even wave our Bible in our faces and say, hey, look, doesn't your Bible say forgive everybody? As if that meant some kind of absolute tolerance for any idea or any lifestyle, no matter what it was. I I need to have you ask yourself here, you know, one of the basic rules of Bible interpretation is the scripture doesn't contradict itself. Here is Jesus speaking within a few verses, and he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And yet in verse 6, look what he says. Do not give dogs what is sacred or give your pearls to pigs. Now, we'll get there in a minute, but he's talking about people, not animals. And he's willing to call some people a dog or a pig. Jesus was forming a rational understanding, a discerning understanding of where some people were spiritually. So how does that relate to do not judge? Well, I think the easiest way perhaps to tell you, and and I'm actually kind of surprised that none of the more modern Bible translations have ever chosen, in my knowledge at least, to use this phrasing, You would understand this first phrase if it said, do not condemn, lest you be condemned. For the majority opinion here is that what he's saying is it is not your right to bring a judgment of condemnation against another person that writes that person off. Certainly, you have the right and the ability to use your mind, to use facts and knowledge, to reason, to discern, to uh, come to analyze a situation or a personality or something and and come to a conclusion. God gave you your mind. He gave Christians the Holy Spirit to make us wise and discerning. I met an individual not too long ago that I actually had met years before, but I hadn't been around him for a long time and and I was around this person a little more and I was very impressed with this individual and I said to others, you know, this man is an extremely humble and godly man. Now, was I wrong in, in drawing that kind of in a, a discerning evaluation? I don't think so. That was certainly a very legitimate observation, and it seemed to be true to this person and, and who he was as a man of God. But what Jesus is warning us against here is not the use of our minds to think, but that judgment that consigns somebody to condemnation. The same thing as when the Scripture says it's wrong for us to ever say, you fool, to somebody else. Because biblically to call somebody a fool is really to say, you're a worthless person. Your soul is actually worthless. And in making that kind of a judgment, what have I done? I have played God. I have imagined that perhaps I know how to draw the lines between entrance to heaven and to hell, and I certainly do not. An example of this, I think, is found in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, an incident you might remember, a sort of minor incident when Jesus was traveling through Samaria with several of the disciples. And Samaria, of course, was an area with a troubled past. They had some knowledge of the faith in Jehovah from the Old Testament, but they were sort of a mongrel people and uh, didn't agree with the faith of Israel completely, and nor did they agree with the gospel of good news that Jesus brought. And they passed through there, and apparently the reaction of folks in this Samaritan town wasn't very good. And James and John were there beside Jesus, and they, they were huffed about the way people had reacted negatively to Jesus. They were offended on his behalf. And they said, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I always thought that was very interesting. You know, that's a really presumptive thing. You know, James and John apparently had participated in some healings. They had perhaps gone and laid hands on a head and said, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed, and had seen some marvelous things. And they were riding high. And, you know, they thought the wrath of God was now at their disposal, that if a town didn't like Jesus, bam, we disciples will wipe you out. Well, Jesus rebuked that. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. This is wrong. And they went on from that place. The point was that it was not their role to make such a judgment. It did not belong to them, even as apostles of of the New Testament to be able to take the place of God and decide who should finally receive his wrath. Yes, of course, there is legitimate moral discernment and thinking that we need to make to decide between right and wrong, to be grieved when we see groups of people or individuals disobeying God's word and and even exalting their evil and saying that it's right. Of course, that's something we would I hope he's smart enough to say this is not in agreement with the Scriptures. And we are to use our minds to see not just the difference between right and wrong, but beauty and ugliness and evil and holiness. But we're to use our minds constructively to, as we analyze people and movements and events. In Matthew 10, 16, I always loved the word Jesus used there when he said his disciples ought to be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. There ought to be a wisdom about us that sees what really is going on, but nevertheless is not ready to pounce and ready to tear down and criticize everyone else. Jesus didn't want naive or foolish disciples But neither did he want disciples whose critical faculties were ready to attack and ravish everyone who didn't immediately embrace the truth. I believe when he said, judge not, what he really was saying, you could turn it around if you want and say, judge yourself first before making any judgment that would lead to condemnation of someone else. There's a big difference between rational analysis and spiritual discernment, and condemnation and criticism that prejudges God's verdict on someone. Now, the rest of our text, Matthew 7, 3 to 6, then follows with two rather memorable applications of this main principle. They spring from the principle that's in 1 and 2, and they're both very practical, but they're actually quite different. The, the first application is 7, 3 to 5, and then the other is freestanding in verse 6. Let's look at verses 3 to 5 for a minute. And this is very familiar to us. It's a kind of one of those sort of sayings that's crept into common speech when Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank or the board in your own eye? Now, it's critical that this refers to a brother that's a critical word there, because I believe this is about discernment regarding the faults of fellow Christians. What kind of discernment do we need to have regarding the faults of fellow Christians? And Jesus gave us this almost ludicrous word picture of somebody getting excited about a speck of sawdust that you could probably barely see. Now, if you have sawdust in your eye, you know it, but but your neighbor doesn't necessarily even see it. And yet here you are with a huge log poking out of your eye. It's a laughable picture. It's so exaggerated, and yet it gets our attention. And we're, we're almost not ready to believe that we really do have that kind of a double standard in moral judgments, but we do. You know, I look at your faults in the microscope. I prefer to look at my own faults, if you can do this, through the telescope. And they look very far off, you know. And they're very dim and fuzzy. You know, if I uh, tell my wife, some, well, let's, not, let's leave my wife out of it. If I tell somebody else, <laughs> No, that was unintentional. I, if I tell somebody something that's a version of the truth, let's say that's just bent a little bit, and I choose to leave part of the truth out of it and, you know, not quite say it the way it was, and somebody called me on that, I'd say, well, it was just an innocent little white lie. But if I caught Elder Seldenridge doing that same thing, I might have been so incensed at what he did. You're on the hot seat here, Kim, that I would say, why, I can't believe that he did that. That was an atrocious, unforgivable, outright deception. Isn't it true that that's the way we do it? My faults don't look quite the same as your faults. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We need a wisdom that sees our own sin first and foremost and understands it and bears in mind how much Jesus Christ has had to do to forgive us. It's not just once upon a time when I accepted Christ as my Savior long ago. It's every single day that the grace of God needs to forgive me and make me new and cover that sin of mine. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not have to be judged. Being born anew by Christ, we have his spirit, which is a a capacity for self-assessment, true self-assessment. You see, part of the very first thing that happens when you become a Christian is you look in the mirror, and it's as if you never saw yourself before, and you say, Woe be to me! God be merciful to me! I'm a sinner! I have no hope! Save me for Jesus' sake! You see, you see what is really there for the first time that some people never come to see. Well, you keep on seeing that picture day in, day out. You say, God has saved me by grace. Oh, what grace I need to have as I look at others and their lives as well. I remind you of the picture of David in 2 Samuel 11 It was the place where he had committed the great sin of of adultery with Bathsheba. And in the aftermath of that, of course, he engineered to have Uriah, the husband, killed on the battlefield and look like, you know, you had to say, David, didn't you even have a twinge of self-recognition in all this? And then there he is sitting in his court one day and along comes the preacher. Preachers always mess up your life, you know, and The preacher Nathan came in and meddled and told a little parable about a rich man who stole a lamb from a poor man, the only animal he had, and this rich man grabbed it and took it away. Well, you can imagine the king because he's also kind of the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Israel. And he's bouncing up and down on his throne saying, what? Nathan, is this based on something real? Tell me who that guy is. I'm going to go wring his neck and take his life. And you know what Nathan said. You are the man, O king. The important point I want you to see is that David didn't jump up and say, what? What are you talking about? No such thing. Couldn't have been." No. This man of God immediately was convicted and knew And it was upon that immediate conviction that the words of the 51st Psalm poured out of his groans and his tears. Have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me against you and you only. I have sinned and so on. This was a believer's tenderized heart and mind to have the discernment to know what sin meant in his own life. Now, I want you to see that in Matthew 7, 5, Jesus is not telling us. You, you might form the impression he's saying, look, don't ever meddle with any sin in anybody else's life. That it doesn't say that here. What it says is, if you're going to go and operate on the speck of sawdust, here's what you have to do first to be ready to do that. See the sin in your own life and see yourself as a child of grace And look at verse 5. Once the plank is out of your eye, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He does assume that you're going to exhort your brother. You're going to try to help your brother or guide him or maybe even rebuke him. But you'd better do it in a full acknowledgement of the grace of God. The Scripture tells us in Matthew 18, it's the same Jesus who's speaking there that says, if your brother has offended you, Go and tell him. Go and see if you can work this out. It's the same Christian church in the New Testament that has the duty given by the apostles of discipline exercised through the elders in the church, not as haughty, you know, men sitting there saying we're perfect, and there's there must be somebody in this church who isn't perfect. Let's go get him. Good grief. Not even close. But elders who in the spirit of Galatians 6.1 would take the apostles' advice that if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, watching yourselves, lest you be caught in the same thing. Jesus says there is a way to see clearly to help other people with their sins. It's seeing your own, first and foremost and constantly. Get the lumber out of your eye. And then you might be ready for some sawdust surgery. In the early church, there's a man whose name is probably not known to most of you, but a a famous preacher. He was called the golden-tongued one. He was such a good preacher. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom said once, Yes, by all means, correct your brother, but never do it as his foe or as his adversary. Do it rather as his physician bringing the medicine of grace to heal and restore. That's a right understanding of this passage. Finally, today, we see this word in in verse 6 that seems so odd. I wouldn't blame you if you read it and say, what is that doing here? It seems to kind of stick out. It, It doesn't quite sound like Jesus. It's rather harsh sounding. As he says, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. What's he talking about, and how is it related to the foregoing? Well, it is related. We were just talking about spiritual discernment towards the sins of fellow Christians. Now we're talking about spiritual discernment in how a Christian acts with unbelievers. Certainly the majority opinion of all commentators is that when Jesus talks about a dog or a pig here, he's talking about an unbeliever, and not just you know, a mild-mannered unbeliever, but someone who very determinedly and fiercely rejects the truth of God. Now, dogs were not uh, anything in the ancient world, in the first century world, that you would have wanted to be around. We have this little cuddly lap dog at our house. That's not what this is about. The dogs of that day ran in packs. They were wild. They scavenged in the streets among the garbage. They were fierce. They were little, little more domesticated than wolves, practically. You didn't take them into your home. The pig, of course, was a, a despised animal by anyone with Jewish background who did not eat pork. It was an unclean animal. And here's Jesus categorizing some people as dogs and pigs. Certainly not complimentary in the least way. We think he's talking here about those who have heard the message of the truth of God, for whom the pearls of the gospel have been made known, and they have rejected and they have angrily pushed back against it, and they will mock it, they will be sarcastic about it, they will resist it in every possible way. And this isn't theoretical because many of you know such people. And you may have such a person who's near and dear to you, who is rejected and continues to reject the gospel of Christ. What is Jesus saying here? It seems to be a word about witness. Are we told never to, to speak the gospel before somebody who is unhappy about it? Well, I don't think so. We're supposed to give a good account of truth to everyone, But it seems that there does come a time, and you could see examples in other places in the New Testament, when somebody has pushed back and pushed back and bolted the door against the truth of God enough times that the right answer for that person becomes silence. Herod the Great is a good example. You remember Jesus in his several trials the night before his death? He answered Pilate. He answered the high priest. And here was Herod, this blasphemous man of half-Jewish caste who knew the truth of the Old Testament, who basically spit on the truth of God and made a mockery of it. And when Jesus stood before Herod, he never opened his mouth. He would not speak to him. He would not answer his questions. We presume because here was a man who had despicably used the pearls of God's truth who had determined not to hear it. You can find examples in the ministry of Paul. Acts 18 shows him on a time when the synagogues of Corinth had rejected his message, and and he turned to them finally and said, Your blood be on your heads. I'm clear of responsibility for you. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. It's a hard verse to interpret, I grant you, and I think we need case-by-case consideration to have discernment about how to witness and how to live to those who resist and are angry at the gospel. Certainly, witness wherever you can. But if the door is slammed in your face time and time again and bolted, maybe what you need to do is witness simply with your life and continue to pray for that person. Never stop that. Never assume that the Lord has written the person off. Two extremes are ruled out for us by our text. We cannot be simpletons. We cannot be naive. We go into this world needing a lot of discernment about how to live for Christ, and God gives that discernment. But at the same time, we shouldn't be so jaded, so cynical, and so critical by what we see in the evil that's terrible in our world today that we start to write people off and we start to consign them to hopeless categories. You never know what God is doing. And I've said this before, I continue to say it. I have seen some of the more marvelous conversions that I've seen in my life were people who were really angry, really angry with God right before they bowed before Jesus Christ. You never know for sure what God is doing. Scripture promises a Christian, we have the mind of Christ. Let us use these minds that God has given us. Let us consult with one another and discern and be wise. But above all, let us realize that God, for Christ's sake, has done so much to forgive us that it must color the way we see others as we grow in a Christ-like discernment about what is going on around us. Let's bow together. Father, we need your hand. We need your wisdom. Oh, Holy Spirit, who gave the Word, who brought us to Christ, we pray that you'd make us wise in in knowing how to approach people. Forgive us for preemptive judgments and criticisms and categories that we have slapped upon people. Keep us a praying people, a people in whom Christ would be visible, a wise people, a loving people as we know what you, for Christ's sake, have done in us. And may he get the glory. Amen.